This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Greg Zuckerman. He is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and an author of numerous books. The one we spend the better part of two hours discussing is The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. If you are at all interested in so many things, Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons, quantitative investing, hedge funds, how difficult it is to beat the market, and how astonishing the performance of Renaissance Technologies has been. Let me tease you a little bit. 30 years, 66% a year. That is just mind-blowing. Nobody in the universe comes close. There isn't anybody who does half of that. That's what makes this so just completely mind-boggling. Uh, they are absolutely a, a unique entity. You will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed the book. I plowed through it in a day and a half on the beach uh, over the holiday weekend, and it's not out until November 5th. So by the time you're hearing this, it will be available for pre-order. Uh, all I can say is I enjoyed the book, and I had a fascinating conversation with Greg, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. So with no further ado, my conversation with Greg Zuckerman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, Greg Zuckerman, Wall Street Journal reporter and author, two-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award for Outstanding Business Reporting. He is the author of The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire Wildcats, and The Greatest Trade Ever, How John Paulson Defied Wall Street and Made History. But his newest and most fascinating book is Jim Simons, The Man Who Solved the Markets and Launched a Quant Revolution, Greg Zuckerman, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to be here. I think I sort of retitled the book for you. Um, so I'm I'm fascinated by Jim Simons ever since I was a high school student applying to Stony Brook Math Department, where he turned out to be the the chairman. That plus sixty percent annual returns for thirty years; those are just astonishing numbers. What what was it that made you decide to write a book about the most reclusive hedge fund manager ever. So uh, I've always wanted to. He's sort of, if you're a financial journalist and I focus on the buy side to a large extent, there's no one more impressive. You can he's talk the white whale, isn't he? He is the white whale. And yet he's also got this mystique about him, partly because they're such a secretive firm. Um, others have tried. That was part of the allure as well, that others had reached out to him. He didn't want to work with them. I myself had tried. He didn't want to cooperate. Uh, for whatever reason, that created an added a level of mystique and allure for me. So I took the challenge on. So in pursuit of this, you spoke to over 40 current and former Renaissance employees. What was that like? Well, early on, it was quite difficult. Um, no one wanted to talk to me. They and, and why was that? I know there's a little bit of paperwork involved as to why some people were hesitant to speak with you. Right. So Jim Simons and his uh, colleagues at the firm have everyone sign 40-page uh, non-disclosures, non-competes, and they're serious about them. Um, I was warned early on, don't waste your time, Greg, both by people internally, people that used to work there. Uh, Simons himself said he wouldn't talk to me. 
it got worse than that. Simons started telling people I wanted to talk to not to talk to me, not to cooperate with me. In other words, you would set up a, a conversation with someone and he would get wind of it and, and quash it. Yeah, I had meetings set up with senior people in the industry, in the quant world, billionaires who you wouldn't think would care what Jim Simons would think. These are rivals of Renaissance. Right. And yet, right before we were supposed to sit down, they said, sorry, I can't talk to you, Greg. Jim asked me not to. Nobody so, talks about the family. It, 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 it's, you describe it's it very, it very much like the mafia, right? Yes, we're competing, but you still are things you don't do. And one right. thing you don't do in the quant world is get Jim Simons upset. So <laughs> here I was being told, don't waste your time. Simons isn't going to work with you. I'm not going to work with you because Jim asked me not to. I had, I literally had um, my advance and not insignificant advance from my publisher uh -huh. uh, on my desk uh, in my basement in my home in suburban New Jersey. And I wouldn't cash it because I wanted the ability to hand it back. Because um, you were concerned you wouldn't be able to get anything done without any cooperation. Right. Um, if you talk to my wife, she doesn't. She can give you all <laughs> kinds of conversations where I was whining and complaining and just frustrated and concerned that I wouldn't be able to pull this thing off. Um, and at one point, the accounting department from Penguin, they were like, what, what's why the deal hasn't with this, that check? Why hasn't this check clear? Something's wrong. Because who? What, what author doesn't cash a, a check? You know, we don't do so well. What was um, the turning point where you felt, oh, now I'm starting to at least get a little traction with these guys? Right. So I went out to California and I spoke to some former colleagues of Simon's who worked with uh, Jim back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s. Early and day. Right. And their story was just too fascinating not to do the book and too compelling. I mean, these are interesting characters. As a writer, you look for just colorful, color, colorful, uh, intriguing individuals, characters that you could write about. And they, you, you couldn't do better than these people. They um, were temperamental. They were high strung. They were fascinating. They were smart. They'd accomplished all kinds of things in academia. And then they took on this challenge of trying to conquer the markets. So, and there was all kinds of intrigue that I wasn't really aware of behind the scenes. Um, anger, fights, disputes, screaming matches, things that, you know, when you think of a quant and, you know, a mathematic, mathematicians, maybe just I did. I didn't really think they um, cool. bled like you and I. Yes, exactly. Right, sort of detached, detached, deliberative, scientific. Right. So when I learned about the early story of Renaissance, and it's quite fascinating, I said, you know what, how do I not write this book? It was a bit of a leap. So I had the early part, but then what do I do about the middle and the later parts where people, uh, there weren't as many people who had retired, who were academics, right. who might speak to me. These are more recent uh, types of individuals, some, some still there. I had to I had to work. I had to somehow get them to talk. So, so, what was the turning point? When did you start to have these folks speak with you? When I, I got a good sense for the story, um, I got some people who work there to open up to me. Mm -hmm. And why they spoke to me, I'm you know, as a writer, you're never hundred percent sure. I believe that good stories want to come out, and yeah. this is a great story. This for is sure. the greatest financial. Um, investor in modern history. Jim Simons, his firm is the most impressive money-making uh, operation in Wall Street history. So 
Some of them were proud and some of them actually wanted to share and talk to the extent that they could. They kind of wouldn't tell me usually. No secret sauce came out. Well, it leaked out. So here and there. So that's my job as a writer. You Uh get a little snippet. They drop a little crumb here and there. It's my job to kind of put it together into something of a loaf or at least a half a loaf for, for the readers. So they gave me enough to give me encouragement. Yes, they weren't laying out all the algorithms for me. Not that I would understand them anyway. Anyway, when, when I finally, so, and then I finally got Simons to speak. So discuss that because for the longest time, he said, no, I want nothing to do with this. So I'm never going to speak to you. How did you finally get him to sit down with you? And, and how long did you talk to him for? So we had an, and still have a complicated relationship. He didn't want the book to be written. He still, uh, as of a few months ago, asked, do, we, do I really have to write this book? Um, part of it is the guy makes a billion and a half dollars hardly going into the office and doesn't want to rock the boat. These are hardworking individuals, scientists he's hired or helped hire or have joined subsequently, and he doesn't want to get them angry. He says he's a, generally a pretty good guy, and, and here they are working, slaving away. And if the guy making a billion and a half dollars is telling secrets, um, they wouldn't be thrilled with him. Um, so he didn't really want this book being told. and But at some point, he got the message that I wasn't going away. And he realized I was doing serious research. So I was talking to academics. He worked with back in the day, um, code breakers. He's got this really rich, fascinating life even before he got uh, Mm -hmm. to Renaissance. If he had never started Renaissance, he never even invested, he'd still be so ample ample, um, opportunity to write a book. There'd be reason to to, to write about him. So um, I think when he started hearing from these 70 and 80-year-old academics uh, from Princeton and other kinds of places he worked with back in the 70s and in the 60s even. Uh, He got the message, I wasn't going away. And I think he realized, well, better to talk to Zuckerman than um, not share any perspective in a book about him and his firm. The joke I used to hear from people who had reluctant interviewees and other books was, well, who do you want to shape the story? Do you want want to shape the narrative or do you want to let your competitors and enemies shape the narrative? Right. And that's a lot of my approach in my day-to-day um, writing at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I call it the haircut approach. I am, I'm going to give you a haircut. You can sit still or you can move around, but I'm going to give you a haircut. And it's not to say that it's a threat in any way. It's being- um, It's just honest. Right. It's a little blunt, but yeah. And Simon's realized that um, there's something to be said for um, working with me, but I do want to make it clear that he wouldn't share um, inside um, secrets, secret sauce, as you describe it. So I I don't want to suggest that he kind of opened the kimono. That was still difficult to the end. So it was, so we sat down together multiple times. For how many hours did you Uh, talk to him? We added all up. It was over 10 hours. Really? Oh yeah. That's a lot of Jim Simon's FaceTime. It was a lot of time and the topics ranged. It included his uh, recent life, which is also (laughs) quite interesting, what he's trying to do in autism research science, education, subsidizing teachers around the city of uh, New York City, um, politics a little bit too. He's a big funder of democratic causes and, and candidates. So the topics ranged. He was generous with the to- his time and, the, and, and, and uh, regarding some of those subjects, his early life uh, and his mathematics. A guy like me needed help understanding. So I appreciate the help he gave me there. And in terms of the Wait, day-to-day- are you, are, you, are you saying Jim Simons tutored you in, in mathematics? To some extent, yeah. Um, <laughs> he, he was quite helpful because 
I listen. I had a lot of people helping me, and- I, but he is a professor at heart, and I I could see him. Even though he is objecting to your purpose, I could see him kind of saying, no, no, let me explain the math here and, and bring you along. Right. And part of it is, and I've learned this, something about mathematicians, uh, little mistakes really bother them much mm-hmm. more than they do me or people that come from uh, a, a different perspective. So I think it would have just bothered him had there been significant um, errors in the book, be it in regard to his early life, other parts of his life. And I get that. You know, I would send small sections. We don't send large sections, but small sections to various top mathematicians. And they would get angry. Greg, this is all wrong. How can you write this? It's overstated. It's wrong. You can't, you got to change everything. And, you know, you're taking it back. Early on, I was taken aback. I, right. Eventually, I, I learned not to be. And then you, you drill into it. And I don't know, their 5% was wrong, but those that 5% really bothers them. So I got that. So I think if you're Jim Simons, this guy's writing a 350-page book about you and your life. Um, if there were glaring, dumb errors, it would have bothered him. Really would have would have set him, set him off. Let's talk a little bit about um, the book and what's revealed in it. I, I, I've kind of been a Jim Simons groupie for a few de- decades. I think I know about everything that was public about him and Renaissance Technologies and who worked there and their their approaches. But I found the book filled with so many surprises and so many unknown things in the past. Um, tell us what you thought was the most surprising thing you learned and how much of this is fresh new information that was never publicly known before. Sure. So I've read everything that's been written about Jim and his firm. I've watched every interview on YouTube. There are a few here and there. Uh, and I would say about 90% of what's in my book is fresh and new. I think that's about right. I, I felt like uh, almost everything, like every now and then I would recognize something. Oh, I kind of knew that. I, but every page, it was a new revelation that was something previously unknown to me. And as a writer, that's sort of why I did it, to learn. I didn't know enough about this world and about Jim, and each of these characters is potentially a book in their own right. There were so many, I think that was one surprise, there were so many rich characters at the firm. It's not sort of Jim and, okay, you hear Bob Mercer and and Peter Brown. Uh, Time after time, I ran into fascinating, accomplished, quirky, colorful characters. Uh, And the other surprise is how hard it is to be a quant. So you think of these guys are mathematicians, they're scientists. You would think that instinctively they would want to pursue a quantitative approach, the scientific method, that's where they come from. And yet from the beginning, from Simons and his early colleagues, guys like Lenny Baum, uh, Jim Axe, Ellen Burlakamp, others, you see that there's they're fighting their instinct. They're really, their instinct is to kind of just trade like you and I do, just sort of look at the news and anticipate where the world is going and the markets are going. And they sometimes fall back into that pattern, even they. That was shocking. Uh, the early parts of the book describe Jim Simons as the, the derogatory term I use. He's a macro tourist. He's like every day trader watching TV, looking for news, trading in and out of stuff, doing good some days, losing money the other days. But there's nothing special or unique about that. He was every newbie trader, wasn't he? Listen, he had unique approaches, what he thought were unique approaches. I get into them. Uh, At one point, he consulted with this early 
economist named Alan Greenspan. And <laughs> uh, they had different ways they thought they had an edge. But no, they didn't have an edge. Not only that, but it tore him up inside. It made literally um, physically made him ill that he'd come into the office just unsure of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, some days up, some days down. They made a lot of money at one point. Then they gave back a lot of money. There were fallings out with different types of people. But it's not just the early days. Even last year, end of last year, the market is imploding, as we recall. And Down 20% Q4 of 2018. Exactly. And Jim Simons, and I, and I write this story, I, I tell this anecdote in the book, he's on vacation on his huge uh, ship somewhere, and he starts panicking about the market, and he calls his wealth manager, the guy's managing his money. I mean, Jim Simons is worth $23 billion, so he has quite the portfolio. And he's like, hey, maybe we should be buying some insurance here. That's like me panicking. I, the market's down. Hey, should I be selling? Down 20%. Like, like that's a big deal. I guess when it's $23 billion, it is a big deal. It is, but he's a guy who made his $23 billion on the scientific approach, on not on testing ideas, on having systematic approach to investing, not on these narratives and nervousness and reacting, all these behavioral mistakes that we all make, he was about to make too. So even an 80-year-old, the genius, the guy who solved the market, as I call it, he is apt to um, to trade like everybody else. And the, the point being, it's not easy being a quant. You have to fight your instincts to some extent, even when you're a scientist and a mathematician. So let's talk about that a sec. In the early days, when Renaissance was starting to become who, who they eventually become, their big secret they were really big data before big data was a thing. Before CRISP or Reuters or Dow Jones or Bloomberg made commercial database of market prices available, they were effectively assembling their own. That was fairly unique, wasn't it? That's exactly right. And that was one of their early edges. And frankly, they were collecting data when no one cared about it. No one saw a need for it. This is pre-Bloomberg, pre-everything else. They were going down to the Fed, collecting obscure pieces of, of data, economic and other. They were going back in history. So um, it was a several years later, but they were collecting stuff from like the late 1800s. And they didn't really have a purpose for a lot of that data at the time. They had this instinct, instinct that maybe it was because they were scientists that the more data, the better. And any kind of data could be helpful and maybe not right now, but at some point down the road. And yeah, that gave them a complete advantage because then they could test, they could create models, they could do scenarios that others couldn't. And the way I liken it is to a little bit like, if you wanted to create a library, um, how long would it take you? Okay, like your public library, your local library, probably take you, I don't know, a few months to collect all the books. But what if you wanted to create the Library of Congress? It'd be pretty impossible. Some of that stuff, you just can't get your hands. And that's what Renaissance still has today. and And it does help them. So... The cost of building that database, and they were fastidious about making sure the data was clean and up-to-date and accurate, had to be substantial. The typical hedge fund charges 2 and 20, 2% management fee, 20% of the profits. But Simons thought the cost of the database needs to be passed along to investors. So instead of charging 2 and 20, he charged, brace yourself, Five and 44. Who the hell would pay that sort of fee? When you're making a lot of money, an LP uh, will uh, pay that kind of fee. And they so did. Their, their returns, which for the first time ever, 
have been released because it's only always been a rumor. You're Appendix 1 or Appendix B. I don't remember which. The end of the book, you note, since 1988, the medallion has averaged annual returns of 66%, but that's before those 5 and 36 or 5 and 44 fees. Afterwards, it's only (laughs) 39.1% a year for 30 years. Those are just eye-popping, astonishing returns. Right. Uh, And right, as you suggest, you will pay for those uh, kind of returns. You pay almost any fee. They kept raising the fees partly to discourage investors from sticking in the fund. And eventually they kicked out all the investors. And that's part of their secret too, that they capped it. They they capped medallion. Because they realized it couldn't return these sort of numbers Beyond what is it, seven billion or eight billion dollars? Seven, eight like billion a year. So you know you got to give Jim Simons all kinds of credit and his colleagues, and they are the greatest modern day investors in history. But you also want to um, note that they didn't, they weren't able to grow it. They, they knew they couldn't grow it beyond uh, what it is right now. We're talking about the Medallion Fund, ten billion dollars. So it's not like they 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 kept growing it to fifty, a hundred billion dollars. They they knew they could not get those kinds of returns. And and they currently keep the medallion fund or actually it's been that way for 15 20 years is that about right for just simons and the employees of renaissance right which is a wonderful way of keeping talent recruiting Um, and retention yeah you don't even have to pay people there i mean they do pay nicely but just the ability to invest in medallion retains top talent uh, it also makes them so wealthy, quite frankly, that a lot of these guys, when they leave, and the few women that are working there, when they leave, they're not going to another Wall Street firm. They've made so much money. Right. They're doing philanthropy. They're going back to academia, other interesting things. So it's a it's a great way to retain talent, and it's also a great way to make sure people aren't going to uh, quit and start rivals. So let's talk a little bit about one of the most significant people in the book, other than Jim Simons, and that would be Bob Mercer. He, uh, By the time he joins Renaissance, Simons has figured out how to trade bonds, how to trade currencies, how to trade commodities, but he hasn't cracked equities. So Renaissance is a small, unimportant firm generating some nice returns, helping to make Simons conventionally rich, not a billionaire, but rich. But Mercer comes along. How important is he to the renaissance story that's exactly right so around 1994 renaissance uh was an okay middling kind of firm respected by those who knew it most people had no clue who they were they were doing nicely as you suggest in commodities and currencies uh futures but couldn't make it happen in equities and for some of the people internally that was fine they were getting wealthy who cares but no scale no influence no they don't leave a mark on wall street and that's what simon's wanted he wanted to leave a mark on the world broadly and make a lot of money use that money and he couldn't do that unless they could crack equities because as we know um equities you can manage much more money um in in the equity world and relative to the other types of worlds, fixed income and commodities, et cetera. So they were frustrated and there were a bunch of turning points within the Renaissance story. They almost fell apart a number of times, more than I would have expected. That's another kind of surprise from my, my research. There were uh, uh, several times where they really, it was, it was touch and go, whether they would keep going or not. So in 1994, there were people within the firm that said, give it up, Jim, stop trying to figure out equities. And they almost gave it up. And then this guy, as you suggest, Bob 
Mercer came along and Peter Brown, two speech recognition experts from IBM. And they built an improved equities trading system, much improved. Uh, the engineering, the technologies was much better. They combined all kinds of different signals and factors into one system, which is one of their great advantages too, as opposed to different models. A lot of different quant firms have multiple different models. They have one system and it's hard to pull that off. And that's what it took somebody like Bob Mercer to figure that out. So, so one of the things we haven't talked about, it would be important to bring this up, Simons isn't recruiting people from Wall Street. He's not raiding Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. He's raiding the IBM Watson team. He's raiding academic math and, and computer science and physics department. He's taking former NSA code breakers and hiring them. This is not the usual team of Wall Street whiz kids. These are really brilliant scientists, academicians, and others but no one is coming out of of Lower Manhattan. They're they're really a different cut, aren't they? Barry, that speaks to the paradox of the whole Jim Simons and Renaissance story. The very people who figured out the market, who conquered the market, are pretty much the last people you would have expected because they were people that didn't know anything about the market. It's about, didn't know anything about investing. Not only that, some of them were, aren't even capitalists <laughs> internally when you right. talk to them. So let, let's let's stick with that issue. Sure. We'll come back to the academic nature. I'm kind of fascinated by Bob Mercer. The juxtaposition with him is, here's a guy who by all measures, brilliant, rational, completely mellow and even-tempered, just a data-driven mathematician professionally, but then I guess that's his uh, Dr. Jekyll. But the Mr. Hyde is his personality when it comes to his personal politics is the polar opposite. He's a wild eyed conspiracy theorist. He trolls the other Renaissance technology employees. Simons is a big Democrat. A lot of the other academics at Renaissance are certainly left of center, if not Democrats or, or even further left. How does Bob Mercer play in that environment? Yeah, so Bob Mercer is a scientist who demanded uh, internally that everyone stick to the scientific method, and it's a data-driven firm. Everything has to be proved. Um, there's no all instinct, evidence based. There's no intuition exactly, and yet, as you suggest, when it comes to his personal beliefs, I, he believes every insane conspiracy theory out there. It's so shocking compared to who he is professionally. What I'm really trying to emphasize is how different personally his beliefs are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, everything he argues against doing professionally, he does personally. Yes. It, it seems just so odd. He demands proof uh, when it comes to work and not so much outside of work. I mean, for a long time, he was treated as a curiosity within Renaissance. Uh -huh. He would get into the, go into the lunchroom get under people's skin by talking, by sharing some of these conspiracy theories about Hillary or, or somebody else. And people weren't sure internally whether he really believed in it or not. He was the boss. They didn't want to challenge him too much. For, so for a while, they didn't take him seriously. They didn't think they needed to. And then lo and behold, as he, as the firm grew and he became a multi-billionaire, they realized that he was funding all kinds of causes that many people, if not most people at Renaissance, are really uh, uncomfortable with, unhappy about, and they were they were stuck. They didn't know what to do. We're talking about everything from Brexit. He he was uh, helpful in terms of Brexit, 
Breitbart. He was funding Breitbart. Um, and then he got behind the Trump campaign. He's the one who put Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon in the Trump campaign. And one can argue, and people have said, that there may not have been a Trump presidency were it not for this guy, Bob Mercer, which made everyone internally uncomfortable. And, and let's set the stage for that. It's August of 2016. The Trump campaign is in the midst of imploding. There have been a series of scandals back when scandals actually resonated. The whole Access Hollywood tape comes out. I mean, the Trump campaign was circling the drain before Robert Mercer stepped in with a few handpicked people and a little bit of cash. Right. So what happened was Bob Mercer's daughter, Rebecca Mercer, who kind of runs the political side of things in the family, she ran up to Mer to Trump uh, at an event, a campaign event, and say, you better turn things around or else we're done. And Trump Had they been funding him financially? Yeah. First, they were Cruz. They were backing uh, Ted Cruz. And they, after a lunch between Ivanka uh, and Rebecca Mercer, um, the Mercer switched gears. And also Cruz lost. He, he got out of the race. Uh, then they switched gears. They became one of the top funders. I think they eventually became the top funder for, for Trump. So Rebecca, Rebecca Mercer runs up to Donald Trump at an event says, you're going to lose unless you drastically change things. And Trump kind of acknowledges like, yeah, what do I do? And Rebecca said, you've got to work with this guy, Steve Bannon. So Steve and Trump's like, all right, I'll meet with him. So Steve Bannon goes out to the, the uh, country club in New Jersey to talk to Trump, has to wait through Trump, goes through a couple hot dogs, um, ice cream sundae, um, plays golf, and, and you know, Bannon's waiting and waiting. And finally, he gets an audience with Trump, and he lays out stra strategically what he should be doing, and Trump listens to him to his credit, and the rest is history. So if were it not for Rebecca Mercer and Bob Mercer, it's not clear Trump would have won. I can't get a good read on Rebecca Mercer in the book. She's really very minor character relative to all these other scientists, who is she and, and, and what was she doing before the election? So Rebecca Mercer, like her father, is very conservative. Uh, Rebecca homeschools her children and uh, believes in small government, low taxation, hates the Clintons like Bob Mercer. Um, and But they also believe in data and they also believe in the fact that they got really frustrated with mainstream Republicans and they didn't think anybody was going to shake things up like they thought it should be sh shaken up. And frankly, as an outsider, as a writer, I look at these two people and I see two that people that never really contributed to, to broader society. It's not like they volunteer their time to do something, to run, to support, to fund um, um, broader society. Bob Mercer spent his whole life trying to make money. Or was first, first trying to do science and then right. trying to, do, to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But then all of a sudden, he becomes, he and his daughter become the ones who really uh, have such a remarkable shift on society, on you and I. I, I. I find that a little distasteful, frankly. Now, weren't they, though, on a bunch of philanthropic boards in the Museum of Natural History in New York and elsewhere? That they had later. to be throwing some money around. Yes, that, that was the last thing. Election though, wasn't it? Uh, that's a good question. When did they go on the board? We can come back to that. It's a good because it was only after the election that the pressure started coming up to right. Put, wait, he he's a climate denialist and he's on the board of the Natural Museum of Natural History. She was. She, she is. is. Right. Yeah. Is she on? Was, am I confusing who's on which board? Rebecca was on the board of, of Natural um, uh, board of, of, of Museum of Natural Museum History Natural in New History. York, but she's also a a, a climate. Denialist. Yes. Uh, Bob Mercer's a climate denialist. Um, they, he believes that nuclear war may not be as harmful as 
we all believe. All Once the stuff you that, get past the radioactive cloud, it's really not that bad. I, I mean, that's the argument. There you go. <laughs> um, again, not based on science. There's like right. some stray. He picked up on some stray. I'm being he sees, yeah, he sees on a, a stray scientific paper that was since discredited. Right. Um, which is again goes back to the irony that a guy who demands science when it comes to his day to day work, when it comes to his personal outside interests, he's less demanding. And and then the other question that's so interesting is how was Robert Mercer forced to step down as CEO at Renaissance Technologies and, and what is his role currently? So Bob Mercer was at Renaissance throughout the campaign, through the election, and many internally were unhappy about that. But not everyone. Others thought he was a good leader. He formed a really uh, impressive partnership with a guy named Peter Brown. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter Brown is tempestuous. He's always got great, crazy, interesting ideas. Some work, some don't. And Bob Mercer was the calm one. There was the yin and the yang. And they worked really well together. So internally, some people were like, what do we do here? Our CEO is still doing a great job. We're still making 60% a year in the market. But for the destroying democracy thing, he's fantastic. And broader society, <laughs> potentially. Um, and even Jim Simons was, was torn. So Jim Simons was the largest, one of the largest funders of Hillary Clinton. Right. And his top employee, Bob Mercer, was the top funder for, for um, Donald Trump. So he was in a, a bind. Uh, Jim Simons, he couldn't fire his employee for his political beliefs, and he also liked them. He likes them on an individual basis. And to Simons' credit, he says in the book, who am I to tell him how to spend his own money? It's not my decision. Exactly. And many were torn internally. But it got to the point where morale was being affected and they were worried about their ability to recruit and that's the lifeblood for that of that place what what about outside investors uh, a lot of big institutions are not especially happy with trump how was, were they dealing with bob mercer as ceo of renaissance so by then um they had started a few outside uh, hedge funds for institutions and others they still had the medallion which is only for internal employees but right by the time of the election they had outside investors and many were unhappy but that said the returns were still really good so it wasn't clear to me that how many were really going to pull out over Bob Mercer's politics. The bigger issue is that they were worried about their ability to keep attracting talent. And that's what they worry about. That right. is their biggest concern because they're not competing necessarily with um, PDT and Two Sigma only. They're also competing with Google and Facebook. These are scientists who right. could go work somewhere else. And they were concerned um, about their ability to keep recruiting them. And at some point, Jim Simon said, Bob, we've got to talk. And I talk about that scene. I, I describe that scene uh, in the book. And it was difficult for both of them. Bob Mercer mm -hmm. was effectively told to step down. And Jim Simons was telling his old friend who, who helped make him a multi-billionaire that he could no longer help run the firm. The, um, the secret sauce, if anything, is that ability to attract incredible talent from all manner of, uh, of academia and technology and science, isn't it? They have a lot of uh, sauces uh, that are secret and impressive. Um, they're, they're, they're collaborative. They're much more collaborative than most firms. They don't try to predict where the market is going. It's all relationships. It's groups of stocks versus groups of stocks. 4,000 or so long, 4,000 or so short. Um, they have many. But among the most impressive uh, most impressive things about that firm is they still can recruit almost anyone from any area. And they get superstars from academia and other places. Hmm, quite fascinating. What, one of the things I found so fascinating from the book that I did not 
previously put together in my head, but should have. But the book made it clear Jim Simons is really an outstanding builder of teams. He was deputy director at the subdivision of the um, National Security Agency Code Group. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on their name. CRD, it was called at the time. CRD. Then at SUNY Stony Brook, he takes what was essentially a modest state school in New York, builds it into a powerhouse mathematics department, like a world-class math department filled with Nobel laureates and others. And then at Renaissance, he builds another spectacular team. Is it fair to describe to describe him as an architect more than anything? I think that's fair. So listen, Jim Simons has his faults. Um, he's not a perfect individual, but he's quite impressive in his ability to both do the math and the science and uh, when he wants to or needs to, he can do the algorithms. But more importantly, his ability to manage talent. And someone internally said to me, Greg, it's not his genius, but it's his ability to manage genius. Which is not easy to do. It's really not easy. And you think about these really quirky personalities, which really jumps out of you, I think, when you read the book, how many unusual, odd, headstrong, um, stubborn, um, top scientists they've hired and you know, they're pretty wealthy. They could leave and, and go somewhere else. And he was able to create this incentive for them to stay and work together, not just stay there, but they work together. And like you suggest, you can see that pattern early on in his career. He was great as a department chair at keeping people happy, all the different personalities, same kind of thing, where you can't really force someone who's a professor to do what, what you'd like them to do. You've got to create incentives. And that's exactly what he's done at Renaissance, and I think in some ways you can learn management skills from him as much as you can learn how to create algorithms. So one of the interesting parts of the development of Renaissance was um, what took place in the mid-90s. So he's uh, Mercer and Brown, Peter Brown, are working on the equities portion, uh, and they're not making a whole lot of progress. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and it's simply not delivering the sort of returns that everybody is hoped for. And so in 95, Simon says to Brown and Mercer, quote, get your system to work in the next six months or I'm pulling the plug, unquote. How close was the entire equities portion of Renaissance to um, never becoming what it became? Oh, it was very close. And one has to also recall or remember or, or note that Jim Simons had remarkable patience. So he has this optimism that most, most people don't share. He encourages his people. People were giving up internally about trying to figure out equities. People were saying it's a waste of our resources. Stop distracting us. And Simons kept encouraging his team. And yet, as you note, even he was at his wit's end and ready to move on and gave his employees, his staff, Bob Mercer and Peter Brown, a matter of months to figure it out because they had tried and failed over and over again. And there was a quirk. There was um, uh, there was a, an error in the code. There was an error in the code that a guy named David Magerman, uh, who is a colorful individual. You have to tell. So, so let's, uh, I was fascinated by that part of the book. So everything seems to make sense abstractly, but it's losing money. It's not making money. And one day, one of the more junior guys decides to literally go through the algorithm, through the actual lines of code, line by line by line by line, and ultimately finds an error where one of the S&P prices is fixed 
meaning it's supposed to update automatically and it doesn't. It's a it's an entry number instead of a variable that pulls the data inaccurately. That's exactly right. So this guy, David Magerman, was uh, had just been hired a few years earlier from IBM. Early on, he got some had some accomplishments and got some respect internally, but then he blew it. He made a series of dumb errors, mistakes. Basically, he sh was doing things he shouldn't have been doing. At one point, he, he almost pulled the plug on the whole system. It was embarrassing. He was embarrassed. He was close to getting uh, really getting pushed out of there. And he's the one who said, you know what? Maybe I can look at this system and find what the bug is. And as you suggest, there was it was static. They were there, it wasn't updating. Um, the system wasn't updating, incorporating the newest S and P five hundred prices, which sort of you know is a surprise in itself. You think of these top giants in science; they should have made this kind of dumb mistake. There's and thousands of lines of code. Those mistakes happen, right? Yeah, but you think of Renaissance and Medallion and Jim Simons, and who are they? They are like you and I, or at least not like This me. was before they became Renaissance. This was really when they were also Rans. Yes, but you know, it also is a reminder that even the giants make dumb are errors fallible. too. Sure. Right. And yes, so Magerman um, picked up on the mistake uh, internally. He finally got some respect because he brought it over to Bob Mercer and it was Mercer's math. He kind of got it wrong and he kind of, to his, to, to his credit, Bob Mercer, there's some appealing aspects to his personality as well. He said he owned up to it and said, yeah, I screwed this up. Let's fix it. And they're off to the races. And literally, as soon as that's fixed, the thing becomes a money printing machine. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, they went from managing, Medallion was about $800 million or so at the time and equities was like $30, $40 million too. $10 billion of the greatest hedge fund in man's, mankind, modern financial history. So there was a small, tiny error that he picked up on, and the rest is history. So other firms uh, that are in the quant space, like D.E. Shaw, they had a big head start over Renaissance. What was it about Jim Simons that allowed him to catch up to people like David Shaw? There are a lot of things they do better. Renaissance does a lot of things better than everybody else. There's a certain urgency within the firm that you feel when you're there and you talk to people that you don't really necessarily get elsewhere. There's a collaboration that you see internally, one model that other firms don't share. There's a sense of uh, humility. They don't... Um, they don't take too much risk. They pull back risk during uh, crises when things are, are even internally when people are saying, hey, let's put on more risk. They generally speaking, pull back. They use leverage. They use heavy leverage. People don't really focus on how much leverage, but they are a 10 billion fund that can get over $100 billion when they see the, the opportunities. Um, I could go on and on. They really have the, the best trading ability to see what their impact on the overall market is. Meaning they have the ability to execute trades without moving prices. That and they know when they'll move the prices and when they won't. So they can play with their signals and try to make them uh, and, and try to make sure their activity isn't picked up on by rivals. They have some signals that they are internally are proud of and think people aren't aware of. And and they're sophisticated stuff. We're these are mathematical relationships. I mean, it's one thing that one thing that I think everyone should realize that it's not like they've got some secret sauce about you know when IBM goes up every day. These are re mathematical relationships between groups of stocks. And, and the relationship to indexes, relationships to each other, relationships to factors. It's complex, complicated stuff. Um, but they have certain unique insights that others don't. It's like seeing the world just a little bit with a better, um, per, with glasses when everybody else isn't, isn't wearing them. They can see things that others can't. Hmm. Quite interesting. There, there's a quote 
from one of the researchers. Uh, am I pronouncing this right? Penovic? Yep. Uh, I love this quote. Quote, our entire premise was that human actors will react the way humans did in the past, and we have learned to take advantage of that. How much of that is reflected in their algorithms? Yes. So almost all of what they do is based on predictive models that incorporate historic uh, returns, historic moves in the market. And they could be recent returns. They could be from the late 1800s. They don't usually use those, but they're there if they want them to. So they've got the better data and it's cleaner than other people. And they were cleaning it way before anybody else. And they cared about this stuff more. But right, the genius of Renaissance is that we as investors, our behavior is is somewhat repetitive and it maybe and it rhymes. Now, it's not clear going forward whether that'll continue. So things have changed. We've got, as we all know, um, passive investing is, is is dominating the market. Active investors don't play the same role. Factor investing, et cetera. So will Medallion's models, will Renaissance's models continue to trounce the market? Even internally, they're not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. And most of what they, they're doing, they're not high-frequency traders. They're not long-term investors. But they'll buy and sell almost a pair trade in, in groups of stocks and hold it for days or weeks. That's pretty typical. That's a good way to look at it. Generally speaking, on average, it's about a two-day holding period, but they'll get two weeks too. They'll do fast trading. They'll do what looks like high frequency, but really isn't in that they're doing that usually to break up their trade. So they'll do a right. rapid fire within seconds. But they're not in and out necessarily. No, they're not flash boys. They're medium uh, frequency is what people call it mm -hmm. in the industry. They frankly, their technology is good, but it's not great. You would think they would have the best of everything and they sort of poke fun at each other internally that they've got good technology but it's not cutting edge necessarily they're not co-locating and all that kind of stuff well they don't have to though they're not sniffing out other trades and front running them they're executing their own strategies that's exactly right so people do get them confused with kind of the flash boys but yeah generally speaking about two days or so is a holding period and and we talked about in the early days uh jim simons was sort of a macro tourist he still occasionally overrides the system. Tell us about when that happens and, and why does he think his flawed human instinctual judgment is better than the system? It is unusual and a little bit surprising. They, generally speaking, never override their models and they but take pride in that. we can't say never, can we? Generally speaking, exactly. In times of crisis, the firm will pull back when they're not sure, when they're worried. And that's part of that humility. So they don't have this arrogance that, oh, our models will survive, the LTCM kind of thing. They're not – they're not – you know, John, Mary, um, Weather, and, and that team at all. Right. They get scared like you and I. And even though internally there are people that say, don't ever mess with the models, people like Simons, he doesn't run things day to day. But in terms of crisis, I describe uh, in the book, there were, there's panic. There was panic there like any other kind of trading firm. And in those kind of times, he overruled his colleagues. And he said, yes, we'll probably make money here if we stick with our models, but I'm worried about surviving. And if you think about it, they also borrow a lot of money. So they've got lenders, banks, and others. And those banks get nervous if they pull back on them, that'll affect things. So Simon's, that's part of Simon's genius that again, he can manage really well too and, and, and deal with investors and, and, and borrowers as well. How much leverage do they use? It depends. It, it ranges if they're excited about the market and opportunities if they're not, but they could do 10 times or even more. It depends on what the opportunities are. Uh -huh. And 10 times sounds like a lot. Uh, Long-term capital management was 100x. The big Wall Street banks in, in the subprime era 
We're 40X, so 10X almost sounds modest. Also, you got to remember, they're long and short all the time. Everything is hedged. They're long, again, about 4,000 and short about 4,000 on average uh, equities. So them leveraging up is not like you and I going long, Microsoft and leveraging up. It's it's different. It's pretty balanced, and the odds are against anything untoward happening. There. Yeah, and, and the thing to remember about Renaissance is they only get it right barely more than 50% of the time. And they're aware of that. So on the one hand, their sharp ratio is crazy great, which allows them to leverage up and borrow this money. And it's pretty impressive in its own right. But it also is a reminder, they realize they're, they're, not, they're not hitting home runs every single day. It's like a casino. They're making small amounts all the time. Huh, quite, quite interesting. And it's sort of laughable today, but you listed in the book a number of fairly famous uh, investors and hedge fund managers today who in the early days of Renaissance, Jim Simons went saying, hey, I'm raising this fund and I'd like to have you be an investor. And they pretty much across the board said no, laughed him out of the office. Uh, Bruce Kovner, Paul Tudor Jones, who else famously... Well, said no to, to Simons. Sure, Donald Sussman is the key one. Donald Sussman is one of the most respected investors uh, on Wall Street. He backed D.E. Shaw. He's backed a lot of um, famous investors over the years. And he's a really well impressive guy in his own right. Got a great track record. And Simons came to him hat in hand in 1990 saying, I think I've got it. I think I've figured it out. I'd like some backing from you. And it wasn't that Sussman... Disagreed. It wasn't that he was necessarily skeptical of Jim Simons, but he had already invested in D.E. Shaw. He didn't want to invest in a competitor. And there wasn't much of a track record at that point. Mm -hmm. In 1988 is really when they decided to go all in on quantitative investing, um, using big data, using algorithms, as opposed to using some of the instinctive uh, intuition type trading. And so there wasn't much of a track record in 1990 when Jim Simons uh, went to speak to Donald Sussman. So you can't blame him too much. But yeah, he, there were a number of pretty well-respected investors I talk about in the book who had an opportunity to invest in Medallion and passed on it. And then a few years later, or maybe it's 15 years later, Simons goes to the outside Medallion investors and says, hey, thanks for the capital, but here, we're going to give this back to you. We we can't use it anymore. What A, what was the thinking there? And B, what was the reaction of the investors? They must have been pretty, you know, stunned. So they, again, have these re remarkable models that allow them to know how much they can make uh, in certain size, how much they impact the market. They're pretty sophisticated. And they realize that at, at $10 billion or more, they're going to really not be able to have those kind of returns. Now, you and I would probably say, fine, instead of being up 66% a year, we'll be up... 35% a year and we'll grow this AUM here and make the money. But no, they wanted this hedge fund to be just for them and to have these outstanding, remarkable returns. So they proceeded to kick, as you suggest, kick their LPs out, kick their investors out. And they were not happy. They, they, weren't, they weren't thrilled. Some of them said, you know, I stuck with you, Jim, through the difficult times and here you are kicking me out. And he kicked out his friends too. He kicked everybody out. Really? And he basically was just a little him. cold. You know, Jim Simons is uh, a fascinating guy. He's a scientist. He cares about society. He's a huge philanthropist, um, does all kinds of really interesting things um, in education and science. He also really, really loves money. <laughs> and he 
as a tool for what it can do. Or just loves it. Let's not go overboard here. Let's, like for, let's for an credit. academic, that it comes across yes. that he is much more motivated by a, a, accumulating cash than the typical academic. Oh my God, it's no comparison. Quite honestly, he always had one foot in the world of academia and one foot out. He was always doing businesses and mm -hmm. they were quite interesting. I read about him in the book. He pursued trading and pursued business, not full time and they never really worked out completely, but he always had these outside interests. So yeah, he always really was focused on getting rich and he wanted to change the world with that money, but he also just plain like getting wealthy. So here they were with staring at the possibility of seeing the returns slow down. And he said, I'd rather kick out my investors than risk the possibility of our returns uh, of dropping. And you, you described earlier lots of colorful characters in the book. Simons is really one of the most colorful characters of everybody. He's a chain-smoking two packs of merits a day. There's a hilarious story about uh, a group of institutional investors from a healthcare company yeah. that are there for some um, just kicking the tires to give Renaissance money. And there's also a birthday cake involved. Tell that story. Sure. That's the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They're dedicated to public health. And they came by Renaissance's Long Island offices to talk about investing in Reef. That's one of their outside funds. This was early on when they were raising money for it. They were impressed. They were having a nice lunch. People around the table. Simons comes in to finish off the sale. Everyone's all excited. The salesmen at Renaissance can see their commissions. They can imagine how much they're gonna be making from this big investment. And Simons, as you suggest, is chain smoking. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's smoked with Always me. has a cigarette in his hand. Yeah, and he's also, you know, 80, 80, almost 82. So uh, it hasn't really impacted his life. So he's in this meeting and Simons looks around. He's, the, the, no he's, ashtrays. He's, no ashtrays. He's looking for an ashtray, but he needs to ash somewhere. And he sees this big, a fancy cake that had been wheeled in uh, to 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 end the the dinner to the lunch and everyone's gonna have a piece of it. So he reaches over and he sticks his cigarette deep into that cake, and he's Jim Simon. He just gets up and <laughs> waves goodbye, and that thing is sizzling as he exits the room, and everyone just look at each other, and the Renaissance salesmen are just. Um, dumbfounded Aghast. and apoplectic they, because they've lost their commission. They, they're sure these are. This is the Robert Wood, uh, Johnson Foundation dedicated to public health. So obviously, this guy just ashed in a, in a sizzling ashed. vanilla cake um, <laughs> right in front of them. They're not going to write a check, but they did nonetheless. Hey, so returns all, speak for themselves, right? Exactly. And in the book, I was shocked to to read this. Someone says to Simon's, "You're a scientist. Don't you know about the dangers of smoking?" What was his response? He said to them, it's not clear if this is tongue in cheek, it probably wasn't, but he researched his genes. And according to his, uh, his work, his research, he was one, is one of these unique people that can actually withstand um, all the chain smoking that he does. He inflicts on his body. He claims his predisposition is to not get lung cancer genetically. He has the lucky, whatever it is, gene that that means you can smoke without ill effects. Yes, and is he fooling himself a little bit like 
Bob Mercer with his pseudo signs outside of the office. Um, and that's one thing that's kind of jumped out in the book that these guys are like you and I in so many ways. They've got their foibles and they get emotional um, and, they're li- and they get fights with their wives and screaming matches with their colleagues. And Jim Simons, yes, has convinced himself that he won't be impacted by smoking. And, it, and to his credit, it hasn't impacted him. So, you know, once again, he may be right. Huh. Uh, Greg, can you stick around a bit? I have a bunch more questions. Sure, I'd be happy to. We have been speaking with Greg Zuckerman, author of The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things Renaissance technologies related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net or give us a review over at Apple iTunes. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Greg, thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I really, really enjoyed the book, not just because I'm a, you know, fascinated by Renaissance and I've had a handful of dealings with Jim Simons without his involvement. He, he and I have never met. But um, when I was a high school student trying to figure out where to go to school, I toured Stony Brook and there goes the outgoing math. Huh. Uh, department chairman, if you would have met him, you would never have given him a penny. The joke about all these people who passed on him, yeah. he had this scruffy beard yeah. and you yeah. know yellow fingers from smoke. Nobody, I could see how people wouldn't have taken him seriously. Yeah. But I have to tell you, I, I um, and there's a funny story that I can't verify about the alumni department at Stony Brook. Um, I can't even share publicly because I don't know if it's true, but if it is, it's pretty hilarious. I really enjoyed the book. I normally take a ton of notes, and the books are always marked up and underlined and with post-its and, oh, here's a question and here's a topic. There really is zero writing in the book because I read it like a thriller. Uh It's a fascinating tale about really an amazing story with really interesting people. You did a really nice job on this. Um, Thank you. What what was the process like writing this? This had to be quite quite a monstrosity to put uh, together. It was hard. It's the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Really? Oh, by far. I can I could totally see that. The, the challenges were getting people to talk, and even when they started talking, understanding what they were telling me. And, and I'm not a math guy. I had to understand this is a different language, right. quant to some extent. And even at that point trying to make it into a narrative. As you suggest, I try to appeal. I want to try to appeal to everyone, um, the quanti type people, mathematicians, scientists, but also just the average uh, nonfiction r- r- reader. I so think you I accomplished would, that. I, I did. I, there, were, there were a few times where I'm working all night in my basement and I hear some sound upstairs and I'm like, oh, my kids left the TV on again. And then I go up to turn it off, and there's no TV on. And then I realize that sound, those sounds are the birds getting up in the morning. Oh, uh, you've just been I just pounding went away through all the night. night. And part of it is because I, I was fascinated by the story myself, and these characters are interesting and intriguing, and what they accomplished and the challenges they overcame and the drama behind the scenes that I wasn't aware of. So it, it was the hardest thing I ever did, but also it was rewarding and fascinating to me. In the, in the early phases of this, did you ever reach a point where you said, 
uh, this is just going nowhere. I, 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 I have to pull the plug on this. Many times. Came close. Too, too many times, yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't close to, to giving up, but I couldn't figure out how I was going to make it happen. And then I would have a breakthrough. Someone would be kind enough to share with me and, and talk to me. Maybe it would be, maybe be on the record, maybe it wouldn't. But that would keep me going. That would give me encouragement and deal with all the people slamming the door on my face subsequently because then there'd be somebody kind enough to, to share right after that. When you spoke to people off the record, how do you use that if you're telling somebody, I'm not going to quote you, I'm not going to use this, how do you work that into the story? Does it just give you enough background or... What do you do with off-the-record um, conversations? And was Simon's on or off-the-record with you? Right. So I don't do off-the-record. Off-the-record, the way we define it at the Wall Street Journal, means you can't use that information. But I was up front with, with all these people and saying, I'd like to use your information on background, meaning I, won't I can quote use you. it. Right, but I won't name you. I won't quote you. I won't cite you. And I... Um, I said, you know, I've been around a little bit, so I have a certain reputation. And I said, I'm not going to burn you. There's no incentive for me to burn you. I'm not going to name you. I'm not going to tell anybody at Renaissance that we're talking. Um, so I got people sufficiently comfortable. And Jim Simons was pretty darn open and frank and transparent, I have to tell you, about what he wanted to speak about. Again, I uh -huh. want to make clear that he wasn't opening the kimono and telling me all his signals. I had to get that stuff on my own uh, and his and how he dealt with certain things and the setbacks and the narrative and, and the, the drama behind the scenes. But he was quite cooperative about other things, and I have to uh, thank him for that. So the early cancellations, the Cosa Nostra, Simons, don't say anything. After you speak with Simons, do you circle back with the early cancelers? And were they a little more open at that point? No, they still wouldn't talk to me. Really? So I had to keep even pushing. after Simon says, "All right, I'll finally talk to you." You know why, Barry? Because they were even concerned about the possibility that Jim might get angry with them. Oh yeah, well, you say that Jim is talking to you, but how do I know that's true? Ask I don't Jim. Yeah, but Jim's got too busy. This guy's he's got a lot going on. He's not going to call him up and say, "Can I talk to Greg?" They already did. You told me I can't talk to Greg, but now can I talk to Greg? It wasn't worth their while. So I had to keep finding. Other people, and, and and quite honestly, a lot of the people early on at the firm and in his life were old and um, they elderly. Don't care. And you're eighty something. You're like, I'll say who I what I want to, who I want. I don't yeah, really they've care. accomplished a lot in their own right. I mean, right. These, these are scientists that are big names, hollow names in some of these fields. It's hard to you have to you have to focus on the fact that even setting aside when it comes to Wall Street and investing, these people are really accomplished in their own right. So they're proud of what they've done, and some of right. these people don't mind talking. Huh. That that's really that's really quite fascinating. Um, I have a quibble with you. Sure. Is Jim Simons really the man who solved the markets, or is he the guy who just figured out here's how to apply mathematics as a way to extract profits from the markets? I I didn't get the sense that he figured out the markets. The markets are just an uh, a means to an end for him. Yeah, to the extent that he's. Um, recorded these remarkable returns. Eye-popping. Eye-popping yes. returns. To that extent, he saw the market. But right, there's no hidden understanding that jumps out at you that he knows that you and I don't know. He's as flummoxed by the day-to-day -day moves as anyone else. What he does, and his, his colleagues really um, do understand, is that 
what impacts prices is a lot more than you and I are aware of. Now, they've mm -hmm. got whole levels of factors that aren't included in the AQRs and the stuff that you can buy off the shelf, et cetera. So uh -huh. they, are, they have a better understanding of the market, I would argue, than anyone else. But uh, maybe it's a little overstated to say they completely solved it. So uh, the other thing that I thought was really intriguing um, in the book is despite these guys making boat tons of money, just so much compared to what they would have made had they stayed at either IBM or academia, they're making four and five and 10x plus whatever the medallion fund is throwing off. Some of the um, squabbles about money, especially in the later history of the firm. So I describe the firm as having four phases, the mm -hmm. early macro tourism phase. Then there's a later phase where they, they figure out um, how to trade currencies, commodities, and futures. Uh, and then when Mercer and Brown crack the equity code uh, is the third phase. Then the fourth phase, they start to bring in a lot of um, Russian computer scientists and other um, academicians, this like fourth generation of, of the company really degenerates into this petty, jealous, backbiting envy to the point where a bunch of them go to Simons and say, you're making too much money. We demand some of it. How, how the hell did, does anyone get away with that? Yeah, they were people telling Jim Simons he made too much money. There were people saying he should step down. There were people... Uh, it was a, something of a coup. They tried to. How does it. he not just say, you, you, and you, you're fired. Go back to making $90,000 as an, a teaching assistant. Because I keep coming back to the point that Jim Simons loves money. And they were really valued employees. So they could have been jerks. But he gets past that. And he's a great manager. He wasn't insulted by that. Listen, if you're going to hire some of the top scientists in the world, you're going to get the personalities that come with that. And he embraced that. So he wasn't insulted. He doesn't huh. take himself so seriously. He, he actually gave back some equity. And he, and he said, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe you guys are right. And I'm Shocking. taking too much of a cut. And I give him credit for that. So uh, It was uh, amazing. Yeah. In the book, I'm like, I just don't know. Because normally, employees like that are so cancerous. They could destroy a company with the sort of petty, envious jealousies that that you describe in the book uh, i found that to be just completely shocking um and his i guess he resolved it in a way that was pretty uh pretty reasonable yeah um he again has a great instinct when it comes to people so it's not he's not just like this um f f quant uh focused on money and numbers and algorithms he understands people and what, what drives them. And he thought he could work with some of the people leading the coup. Yes, they were headstrong and tempestuous and difficult, but they had potential as managers. And he was right. He actually created, he turned them into pretty good managers. So for, for whatever reason, he's got these talents on both sides of the equation. So who's running Renaissance Technologies now? It's not Jim Simons, the CEO, and it's not Robert Mercer. Right. Who's running the day-to-day? -day? It's Peter Brown who's a former IBM scientist. Used to work closely with Mercer. Yep. And was considered the more wild of the two. Yes. And when he took over, when Bob Mercer stepped down, people internally were concerned because, as I said, Peter uh, Brown is a little bit tempestuous and gets emotional sometimes. I describe a couple scenes in my book where he panicked 
Right. And he got nervous and he got scared. This was years ago, and he learned from those lessons. And later on, uh, when Martin market difficulties, he didn't react that same way. But people worried about Peter Brown taking over. And to his credit, he's aware of his flaws and his weaknesses. And he's been leaning, and we're talking the last few years, last couple of years, he's been leaning on his colleagues, his senior colleagues, much more than anyone had expected. And it's worked out nicely. I, I imagine Brown is Mercer without the politics. Um, or at least in actuality, because he's still working closely with Mercer. Yeah, but very different personalities. For sure. Um, Bob Mercer is this cool customer. You don't really you can't read him. Even his colleagues don't really understand. Uh, he's he's so unemotional. They don't understand where he stands on certain mm-hmm. issues. You do not wonder when it comes to Peter Brown. So in some ways, they offset each other. They worked really, they melded and they meshed really well together. And what is Jim Simons doing today? day-to-day at uh, Renaissance. So he barely goes in the office, and yet he makes about a billion and a half dollars uh, a good. year. So why retire? Pretty good gig, yeah. yeah. But really, he's, but it's not to say he's not very hard at work. He runs a foundation, and it's really active, one of the biggest supporters of science uh, in the country. They're very active when it comes to things like autism research, and they're at cutting edge. They back all kinds of cutting edge approaches. Um, he supports, he funds, he, he subsidizes the salaries of high school math and science teachers in New York City, 10,000 of them, because he doesn't want so many leaving to what go is work it, for what places. What does that cost to subsidize? It's going to be giant. Well, it depends how many each year, but oh yeah, it's, it's huge amounts, millions of dollars. I mean, he's worth $23 billion. But to his credit, he's on the cutting edge of all kinds of different approaches when it comes to science, education. Um, they publish Quanta, which is a basic yep. fundamental science and mathematics uh, magazine, which really, who else covers that sort of stuff? And he's also is trying to subsidize the work, and he is subsidizing the work of scientists trying to get at the beginning of life and how this world began. The first moments of our existence, of this universe existence, um, they're trying to build uh, out in Chile, um, all kinds of- massive array. Exactly, right? of, of ability to see, um, go back in history and see uh, through the massive telescopes to see what happened. So he's on the cutting edge of all kinds of different science, yeah. and he's just as focused on that as he was trying to crank out these 66% returns uh, at, meda- at the Medallion Fund. The current theory of the Big Bang is under assault because some of it doesn't seem to work, and some of the work that Simon's is doing is to try and figure out, if not the Big Bang, then then how did the universe come into existence? Yeah, Simon himself isn't a believer in the Big Bang, and yet he's funding efforts to test if it actually, uh, there's some proof to it. Because deep down inside, he's a scientist, and show me the data, show me the evidence, and if you can't disprove it, then that's the best we have to work with. Right. The Renaissance story, the Jim Simon story, really is a story about the scientific method. If you think about it, society today and you think about the White House, it's all about narratives. And if you think about Wall Street too, Theranos and WeWork and people get carried away with the narrative Stories, and yeah. it leads to problems. It leads to real issues. Whereas there's something to be said, I, I've become a believer in the scientific method where it's about data, it's about proof. And this that is to me one of the lessons of the Renaissance Jim Simon story. Quite, quite fascinating. So we only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to our Favorite questions. We ask this of all of our guests, sort of our speed rounds. Tell us the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model. Never owned a car. Only wow. leased. Grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, outside of my dad taught at Brown University. Nothing really going on. The most exciting thing was we'd walk to campus, my high school friends and I, and 
try to hit on girls and usually unsuccessfully. So <laughs> that required legs and, and not automobiles. So yeah, didn't really have a car. Wow. Uh, what's the most important thing people don't know about Greg Zuckerman? I've got this uh, separate life where I write books for young people with my two sons. So we wrote two books called Rising Above, where we've interviewed sports stars who overcame challenges in their youth, racism, sexual abuse, um, physical abuse, all kinds of different emotional and other t types of challenges. And we asked them how they did it. And to us, it was really inspirational. And we share those stories in our books. Tell us who your early mentors were in the field of journalism. Uh, yeah, so I never really had great mentors, quite frankly. I've had a series of bad bosses early in my life before I became Who's your current bad journalism. boss? No, now my, my, my <laughs> bosses are great. Early on, we're talking. So early on, I, I, wasn't, I stumbled into this profession. Oh, I, really? What were the original plans? Oh, I was going to go work on Wall Street. Uh-huh. I was reading books like Adam Smith and Ray Dirks. Do you know this guy, Ray Dirks? The name uh, is vaguely familiar. He had this famous case that went to Supreme Court. He was an insurance analyst who um, was shorting. And okay. They, and it was a famous case that went to Supreme Court, and he won. And he left an impression on me with a book. I was buying Barron's as a, at a young age in camp. I was trading stocks. Um, I was a guy who was going to go work on Wall Street. And I didn't really do any summer kind of jobs. I was working in camps and didn't really have any experience, didn't know anyone. My dad was an academic. And I graduated, and I did well. I went to Brandeis University, did well. And I couldn't even get an interview on Wall Street. It was 1989. <laughs> it was after the market had crashed a couple years earlier. And um, I stumbled around. I started some, some businesses, and some worked, some didn't. And then I went in one day and uh, interviewed to be a financial journalist. I'm like, wait, I love writing, and I love Wall Street. They're going to pay me to write about Wall Street? How great is that? <laughs> so what writers influenced the way you think about writing, either articles or books? So James Stewart, first and foremost, uh -huh. um, everything he's Long done. Longstanding Wall Street Journal reporter, right? And then, then he went, he's at the New York Times now, book author, um, Den of Thieves. He wrote a book called Follow the Story, which is about writing. Mm -hmm. And I've read and reread that book uh, numerous times. So that guides me. Um, there's an editor at the journal named Mike Sikanalfi, who I've learned a lot from. He's an investigative uh, editor. He had, we had a Pulitzer uh, package that we won this, this past year, and he was the editor of that group, and he uh, has left a big influence on me. Uh, since you mentioned a couple of books, tell us about your favorite books. What do you enjoy to read, Wall Street-related or not, when you're not researching your own books? Oh, so Paul Auster, Philip Roth, you know, the fiction there. Give us, give us some titles. When you say Philip Roth, oh, I immediately think of Portnoy's Complaint, but what else do you read? You know, American Pastoral is great. Um, there's really nothing much that from him that I don't love and, and won't read. Um, I'm reading Patty Smith right now. Her autobiography Kids, just came yeah, out. Yeah, right. That's the right, I'm reading the earlier one, but she's brilliant in her own right. Um, Catcher in the Ride at a young age left a huge influence in me in terms of being an outsider, and that's what as a journalist I see myself. My job is to kind of poke holes and look at the foibles and mistakes and. And, and, and accomplishments of, of others, people in the world of finance. That's sort of my position. In some ways, uh, I saw myself in, in, in that character, the Holden Caulfield character, to some extent. What was the first author you mentioned before Philip Roth? Uh, Paul Auster. Uh, Paul Auster is a, a fiction writer who's brilliant in his own way. He's got, he gets into some- Give us a book title. Deep, uh, Brooklyn Diary is a good one. He's mm -hmm. a, so many. Brooklyn Diary is a good one. All right, we'll, we'll go with that. 
Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So many. So I got a tip <laughs> that there was a guy who was running a fraud named Bernie Madoff. And what that year was, this? was probably 2003. All right. So there was already the Baron story, but nobody really picked up on it in a big way. Exactly. Right. When did that Baron's piece come yeah, out? 2002, I think, maybe yeah. 2001. And good source for the tip? It was a good source in the industry, but didn't have firsthand knowledge. So I started making some calls. Right. And it was early in the process, I got a call from Bernie Madoff's right-hand person. And they said, I hear you making calls on Bernie. Why don't you come in and meet with him? And I was torn. At that point, I hadn't done enough research. So I said, I, I want to meet Bernie, but let's do it in a week or two. Well, Greg, he, he travels a lot. There aren't going to be many opportunities. If I were you, I'd really take advantage. So I went in, met with Bernie. Was he charming? He was charming, but not convincing. I asked mm -hmm. him a series of tough questions. I came out of it unconvinced that it was legit, but I thought he was front-running. I didn't think it was uh, a complete fraud. Not a Ponzi, but he was... Because they were a legitimate trading operation, weren't they? Right, and I thought they were front-running that legitimate trading, and that's how you get the smooth returns. Right. And I wasn't the only one on Wall Street who had that thought, and that's no excuse. I should have pursued that story, and mm -hmm. I blew it. I should have kept working on it. So what was the lesson? The lesson is to keep pushing, and and if you've got an instinct and, and to keep pursue it, you listen. Some of my best stories, quite frankly, are those that editors were lukewarm on, and huh. then I kind of kept going at it. You know, um, I wrote give a, us an example. I wrote a I wrote a, a front page story. It became a front page story about John Paulson and his tremendous trade, uh, the subprime trade, and people internally were kind of like, well, um, he must have cheated. There's no way he could have done it in a legitimate way. Um, I, I wrote a, a, I broke the story on the London Whale. And even internally, they're like, Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan, there's no way they could have that kind of embrace that kind of risk. Um, I, I did a story about a family, about a, a, a brother of a, of a woman in Cantor Fitzgerald who died on 9 11. And I wanted to tell the story of how he wanted to tell the story of how his his sister died on 9-11 and I started researching and people were like, you're never going to find out exactly how she died. And you know what? You, you work hard enough and that's the lesson. Sometimes you can actually piece things together. All right. So let's go back to our, our speed round. Um, what do you do for fun when you're not researching and writing books? What, what do you do to kick back and relax? I obsess over the New York Yankees with my son, Eli and play a lot of sports. So I'm on a softball team. I'm on a basketball team. I'm still playing basketball. Yeah, not as well as I used to. I've learned to come off the bench. It's been humbling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, I'm a short Jewish like 40, guy. So like 40 is where that all goes to hell. Right. I'm at the point where you have a good run, good workout, and you're kind of happy about that. But I'm pretty competitive. So yeah. hey, listen, if I can contribute, then I'm proud at this point. I don't need to start and, and dominate. Like I, I was a quick good uh, pass-first point guard back in the day. And, and if I can come off the bench and help, that's fine today. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of fun. Let's talk about journalism a little bit. What are you most optimistic about today and what are you most pessimistic about? I'll start with most pessimistic. Um, that's an easy question, right? I guess it's a difficult time in some ways for journalists. We're at a time where it's more, um, it's open season to some extent. You can criticize, you can be open in your, crit in your criticism. So I wrote a story about uh, Jeff Gunlack uh, a couple of years ago. Double line, fastest growing mutual fund um, ever to $100 billion, um, the new Bond King. Exactly. So in case people don't know who he is. And my story was sort of obvious. It was they had peaked in AUM 
they lost some money. People were coming out. It wasn't like a flood of money. And the returns were good, but they're no longer great. And I wrote this story, and they were they came back hard at me, both privately and, and publicly. So he gets on this conference call, and he starts insulting me. He, calls, he, 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 he says, um, um, Mother Zucker, he calls me publicly. And Mother Zucker. Mother Zucker. It was kind of amusing. That is amusing. Yeah. You got to like that. Yeah, you got to like that. Um, so, so there won't be the greatest bond <laughs> trader ever? The man who solved the bond markets I'll not coming anytime do that, soon. Do that book, sure. If he does something <laughs> special, that would be a new challenge. I like the challenge, um, but I do think there's a new uh, freedom that people have. Again, not just um, on Wall Street, but in society, to be critical of the media and and, and, and me included. Uh, the flip side is there's a new appreciation too. There's a uh, for sure renewed appreciation of what we do, and I sense that as well. Readership is up both at the Wall Street Journal where I am and, and elsewhere. Washington Post, New York Times, all their Atlantic, New Yorker, all their subscriptions are through the roof because they've been covering the new new thing, which is the Trump administration calling journalists the enemy of the people. Exactly. And, uh, and, and to some extent, he's right. We are going to miss him. He brings news. He creates news every single day. It's exhausting. It's emotionally right. draining for us, but it does sell papers, and we, we are going to miss that. So I, we had an interesting conversation about politics in the 2020 election, mm. and a bunch of people were talking about what could lead to Trump losing the, the, his reelection campaign. And my position was Trump fatigue. I, I, you know, I was praying after the 26th election. All right, now that's over. We can get back to normal. I, I think it's used the word exhausting. People just want to get back to normal. It's, it's never ending and it's too much. Yes. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it's like, you know what? I'd like to go through a day where the president is not three front page stories Every day. Yeah. The question is, do people feel that way in the swing states and in our in country? Two, it's Pennsylvania and, and Ohio. It's fascinating. You Basically. Know, I, not even Ohio, I don't think. I think, I think Trump's got Ohio. Florida. But, uh, maybe Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania, yeah. Wisconsin and Michigan are, are going the other way. It's Pennsylvania, Ohio. New Hampshire and, maybe up, a toss up at this point. Small, but it doesn't mean as much. But if you look at he he won three states by 77,000 votes. And that put them over the top. Right. So whatever we talk about nationally is irrelevant. How, is how are those irrelevant. three states going to vote? It's fascinating. And that's Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, plus Michigan and Wisconsin. The real question to me is, if he loses, what does he do? And what happens? Um, does that's he fascinating. Does he leave? Does and he what happens leave? with—oh, well, no. So my wife is in the same camp as you. There's no way on God's green earth he stays hmm. if he loses. And P.S., I think the Secret Service would march him out of the White House. Our job is to protect you, but also to uphold the Constitution. And, Most and people agree with you. I agree. Um, you I, I don't see that Wall as a Street, threat. Talk to people in D.C. I was just down in D.C. I, I think that's a, a really far-fetched threat. Agreed. I just, Agreed. I just, I'm just throwing it on you know. For no, your, I know. Yeah. People, there's, there are a bunch of people who, yes, who wonder it's, about it's something that. To, listen, if you're a macro a tourist, as as I am, and to some extent looking at where the world politics, is, you, me you, too. Right. You got to uh, at least consider all kinds of possibilities nowadays more than ever. Right. Uh, to to say the just uh, to, to say the least. And and what are you most optimistic about with journalism? I just spoke to a group down in uh, the D.C. area, students and. It's easier to have a voice. You can start a podcast. You can start a blog. You can break news locally. You can be on Twitter. Did you it, can, did it, did it, did it. 
I'm sorry. Did I it? There did you go. It, right, it, right. It. Yeah, you could do right. any of those things. Yeah, there are new ways ways to have a voice that in the past there weren't. You don't have to be in the mainstream media necessarily to have influence and have an impact. So, and you still can have impact and and improve things and write about people. And that's one thing I always tell journalists: focus on the people. You can get at important themes through the individuals, and they make for the most memorable stories. At least the way I, I look at it. You know, we didn't talk about the John Paulson trade at all. So I'm going to move this back to the earlier part. This will be the last question of the regular discussion, but I want to bring it up here. So you write a book about John Paulson, the greatest trade ever, but I find there's some really interesting oddities about the trade. Not that it's not legit, but whether or not it was really John Paulson who deserves all the credit. Uh, Paolo Pellegrini, yeah. is his research assistant, yeah. seems to be the person who comes up with the idea, brings it to Paulson, has to twist his arm a little bit to get him behind it. The trade makes literally $5 billion, $6 billion yeah. for, for yeah. the fund. Paulson, and I don't remember if this was your book or your article or somewhere else, it's all a blur, Paulson gives Pellegrini a bonus check for $250 million, am I remembering that correctly? Or was it was it more? It was one seventy five. It's a okay. funny story. Where one hundred seventy five million dollars. Right, right. And Pellegrini's response is one hundred seventy five million. I quit. Is <laughs> is that fair? No, it wasn't right then. It was later on he quit. And it how much later was it? It was a good six months later, and it wasn't necessarily. You know, he was okay with that hundred. He was. You, yeah, one seventy five million. How do you be upset about that? Come well, on. because it's not even ten percent of the six billion. Agreed. Um, but he was fine with that. Listen, Paulson was the one taking the risk. If the trade had blown up, it wouldn't have tra- blown up. But if, if it hadn't worked out, then Paulson would have had to close down his fund probably. Right. So Pellegrini was okay with that. Um, I think the big argument is that Paulson, to, I don't give him so much credit for being short housing. There were a lot of people, if you recall, you probably know. Right, you, you absolutely. Read yeah. 100, 100 there were a lot of people that were tons. worried about housing. What I do give John Paulson credit for is figuring out a way to express that trade, express that bearishness. And that, to some extent, is Paolo Pellegrini. I agree. Right. Pellegrini told John Paulson, hey, boss, there are these things called CDS contracts. Really? What are they? So Paulson had no idea what CDS contracts, and that obviously was the key to the greatest trade ever. Mm -hmm. So I give Pellegrini a lot of credit in in, in the book and otherwise um, for coming up with a way to express that trade. But I also give John Paulson tremendous credit for he was a 50-year-old guy who didn't know anything about the debt markets, and he threw himself into learning about how to express that trade when lots of other people were sticking with equities and shorting equity. So the postscript to Paulson is two subsequent hedge fund performances. Pellegrini launches his own fund, quickly raises a billion dollars as the guy behind the Paulson trade. I think the first year he just shoots the lights out. It's like 88%. Good memory, yeah. Some crazy number. The second year they're barely up for 8%, 6%, something like that. The third year they're negative. They return the money. And he basically retires to some island in the Caribbean. More or less accurate? More or less, yeah. So that's astonishing. Paulson, on the other hand, the fund scales up to $46 billion. He becomes a macro tourist in gold and other things. It's a terrible bet. He's a big buyer at the peak. The fund puts up some pretty crappy numbers for a couple of years. 
And now the fund is back to what? Single digit billions? Is and it's that mostly right? his money too. Right. Yeah. So it's become a family office and he proceeded to lose twenty or thirty billion dollars. So someone said, and I don't, I haven't verified this, but career wise, net net, he's a money loser for his outside investors. I think it's close. And I, I would argue that he missed the lesson of the greatest trade ever. Why is it called why do I call it the greatest trade ever? Because it had limited downside and right. remarkable upside. And frankly, that's what he did his whole career. Even when he was a risk arb, he was getting into positions a little riskier than most other risk arbs, but they had potential for upside. A new buyer comes in in a merger deal and limited downside because I already had a deal. His whole career, he was doing those kind of trades until he did the greatest trade ever. And then he took on all this new money and he started betting on banks and on pharmaceutical companies with and gold, lots of upside, but also lots of downside. He the missed the lesson. The exact opposite of what Simons did with Medallion. Hey, this won't scale. And we want to make sure we're our, our upside and downside. That's a great Risk point. reward is balanced. The the greatest trade led to the man who did not solve the market, the and that basically created what is now ostensibly a hedge fund, but really a family office for the Paulson Ford. Yeah, it's a great point that John Paulson is a very good investor, but he got too big. And how many times have we seen that same story? Over and over. And over and over. And, over. and you know, it's these guys are fallible like anybody else. You can be smart, but take on too much money. And then you're going with your second best idea and your third best idea, etc. And he missed that lesson. Everyone thinks I'm the exception. Oh, because right. I'm, I, I did the greatest trade ever and I caught this one before other people. And they're wrong. And it's tough to take on all that AOM. And as you, as you suggest, Jim Simons capped, at least the medallion fund, he capped that. So maybe he learned that lesson. For sure. And uh, our last two questions. What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad who is interested in either becoming a journalist or a book author or covering Wall Street and finance? Well, this is a broader uh, recommendation for young people in general. Find the people, find the individuals in whatever area you're interested in who are the pace setters, who are the uh, key individuals, people that you, are, you respect, and reach out to them. Send them a note. Hey, I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee. Give 20 minutes of your time. People are generous with their time. You'd be surprised. I'm sure you found it too. People on Wall Street, um, senior people, want to help, want to give back, are much more generous with their time than you might think. Don't be intimidated. If you've got genuine interest, reach out to them. Tell them why you're interested in the area. Form a relationship and learn from them. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of writing and journalism today? that you wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were first getting started? That your relationships are the most important thing you've got, and you've got to develop them. You've got to be kind to people that are kind to you. I always was, but I, it's been uh, reinforced to me. But also the fact that our reputations are created and recreated almost on a daily basis. So you can be doing poorly at your job. I've had times in the Wall Street Journal where I was low man on the totem pole mm -hmm. and people didn't really give me good assignments. And you can change that. That's the beauty of it. You go break a story. You can change. You can Your reputation can transform. Uh, and, and, you, and if you blow it, <laughs> you know, your reputation is, is impacted too. So don't make any mistakes, but don't lose hope. Just tomorrow's a new day. Go break a story. Huh. Quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Gregory Zuckerman, the author of The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simon Launched the Quant Revolution. 
If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can see any of our previous 258 conversations we've had over the past five-plus years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes and give us a review. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put together this conversation each week. Carolyn O'Brien is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my reluctant head of research. Mike Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>